just going through the book of First Peter uh, this summer, and um, before we dive into that, and I think really any time before you dive into a particular book of the Bible, that it's really important to take some time to kind of study a little bit the background of the person you're getting ready to, to read about, the author. Um, if you get a Bible, a study Bible, a lot of times in the beginning, it'll have a little section before it starts that'll tell you about the author, the time it was written. Um, you know, you can Google these people. Um, because it's really important to understand kind of the ups and downs of the person's life that's writing the text. Gives you a lot of clues into um, the imagery they choose to use, the emotion that they use when they write and where that emotion comes from. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about Peter this morning. Um, he's a pivotal character in the New Testament. His name is mentioned uh, more than anybody else besides Jesus. So it tells you uh, a little bit about the influential uh, person that he was to the story of the early church. And Peter was from a village in northern Israel, just like Jesus, probably not that far away from him. He, like a lot of other young boys, um, didn't make the cut in terms of being a rabbi. That was kind of the ultimate goal for every young Jewish boy. But, um, so he kind of settled into this life of being a fisherman with his father. And um, fishermen at that time, uh, it was a kind of a rough and gruff crowd. Um, they worked really long, hard hours. Um, there was a lot of danger and peril uh, out on the seas, a lot of storms that, that whipped in. And so you were always kind of um, just being beaten around um, by those things. And so it was a hard life. Um, Peter was the oldest disciple, probably in his early 30s. Uh, when he began following Jesus, he's the only disciple that we know for sure was married. Um, and so that fact alone adds a little bit of weight to the sacrifice that he made in leaving his community uh, to go on the road with Christ. Peter started out actually as a disciple of John the Baptist. So you know John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. He came before Jesus, was telling people about this Messiah, the Savior that was going to come and baptizing people and and Peter had actually been following him. Um, then Jesus came along, and uh, John was like, there's the guy you should be following. So Peter and his brother Andrew actually became some of the first disciples of Jesus. The book of Luke, um, chapter 5, verse 9, says this about Peter. It says that he left everything and followed Jesus. And maybe him more than anyone, uh, that was true. He left his wife, probably some children, um, his job, his home, um, to go on the road with this guy who was kind of this up-and-coming controversial figure, and he really had no clue how this was all going to turn out. So um, it was a costly move for him, but it also radically changed the course of his life. And his original name was Simon. Along the course of uh, time with Jesus, Jesus gave him a new name. He said, now your name's going to be Peter, which means rock. And at that time, um, the name probably didn't really fit the guy yet. They probably looked around and be like, rock, really? Um, but as time went on, and definitely as the church began and, and got started, that name really fit Peter's personality and who he became. He was um, the oldest disciple, so he was also kind of the de facto spokesman, which is why you see him speaking a lot and he actually asked a lot of the dumb questions that the other disciples were too afraid to ask. They'd be like, hey, Peter, 
ask him about whatever, you know? And so he'd be the one to be like, hey, Jesus, what about this, you know? And he'd be like, what a stupid question, right? So he took it for the team quite often. Um, He was the first to identify Jesus as the Savior, the Son of God. Um, He was also kind of in the inner circle uh, of Jesus' disciples. Jesus had 12 disciples, but, but with Peter, James, and John, he spent a little bit more time. He brought them in on some things um, like his transfiguration where he, he, people saw him in his glory. Only three disciples got to do that. So he was invested in a little bit more than some of the other disciples. Um, at his best, <clears throat> he was that fearless man that walked on water. Um, at his worst, he was brash and arrogant and prideful. Um, he rebuked Jesus, and then Jesus called him Satan. So that's not good. Um, he also disowned Jesus three times, kind of famously. We know that about him before the crucifixion. But after that event, <clears throat> when Jesus was resurrected and came back, and he reconnected with the disciples, Jesus gave uh, Peter this amazing opportunity to kind of make things right. And he gave him this opportunity to kind of repledge his love and his loyalty to Jesus, and that interaction and that kind of restoration in him just changed him forever. He was a humbled guy. He was a more grateful guy for that second chance that he was given. And shortly after that, when Jesus ascended into heaven and the Holy Spirit came on the disciples, Peter was the first one to stand up in the crowd in Jerusalem in those days, uh, just a couple months after Jesus' death and resurrection, and, and preach the gospel, this new story of the death and resurrection of Christ for the first time. Um, so he was, uh, he was bold in doing that because on many occasions he was arrested and beaten and imprisoned for that. Um, he also branched out from Jerusalem. A lot of the disciples kind of wanted to stay there and hang there together, and he was one of the first ones to start moving out um, and, and to take the message to the Gentiles or the non-Jews. So he was a leader in carrying out the Great Commission. So that's a little bit about the initial story of him and kind of the backstory. Now, if we fast forward all the way up to about the early 60s AD, so, you know, 27, 28, 29 years after the death of Christ, there's a new emperor in Rome that comes to power named Nero. A lot of you have heard of him. He's kind of famous for being pretty wicked and cruel, especially towards Christians. But when he came to power, all of a sudden, mysteriously, this fire started in Rome, and all these buildings burned down. And Nero was really behind it because he wanted to build his own buildings and kind of put his stamp on Rome and the architecture there. But once he saw how negatively this whole thing was, um, he blamed it on the Christians. So the Christians were kind of this small sect still at that time in and around Rome, and so everybody now turns their anger and their fury on the Christians for burning Rome down. So Peter is writing this letter, uh, 1st and 2nd Peter, to a group of churches that are under some pretty intense persecution. It's a really hostile time. And so he is trying to strengthen them, encourage them through the various trials that they're facing. And 1st Peter really addresses, I mean, addresses them, but it also addresses us, on how we live under times of great trouble and stress and anxiety. It forces us to examine what our hope is in and how we love Christ and love others in the midst of those tensions um, and those uh, hard times that come in our life. And we can all relate to 
those times in our life where it feels like the temperature is just kind of getting turned up a little bit, and it feels like maybe some things in our life are on the, the brink of, of collapse, things are kind of falling apart, and it's maybe been different things for you over the course of your life. It could be friendships that's happened to, marriages that seem like they're hanging in the balance, um, careers that have gone south for whatever reason, relationships with children, um, your own faith. Any of those areas may be under attack, and how will we respond? Because if we're honest, it's during those seasons of life when, when, when life seems to kind of be pressing in that our, our real character pops to the surface. Um, I don't know if you can relate to this. I mean, I can think of some times in my life when the heat's kind of been turned up the most, and all of those things that I didn't really know existed under the surface to the level at which I knew, all of a sudden, man, bam, why am I so defensive? Why am I so angry? Why am I so whatever, judgmental? I didn't know those things existed in me. And sometimes it just takes the right amount of heat for those impurities to come to the surface. And, um, and so it's in those moments, I feel like, where our true character is kind of revealed. So I want you to open your Bibles now to 1 Peter. It's page 1109 in your pew Bibles. Way in the back. We'll start in verse 1. The top it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. So he begins by kind of identifying some of the churches in which this letter is going to be spread around. A lot of times when they would write a letter, it would go from church to church to church. And, and one church would read it and kind of memorize it, maybe even copy it down for themselves, and they'd pass it on to the next church. Um, so he identifies some churches he's going to, going to. And one of the first things that I notice is that he mentions all three parts of the Trinity. And when you're looking at some things in, in early scripture, you know, you always want to look for things like this that are like, what are the accepted beliefs of the earliest Christians? And so Peter is definitely reminding everybody that God exists in three parts. He's saying that he reminds people that you were chosen by God, that you were redeemed by the, the blood of Christ, and that you're being sanctified or you're being changed into the image of Christ by the Holy Spirit. So let's look at verse 3. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So here's where we start to get a sense of kind of Peter's passion for the gospel. He mentions several kind of blessings that are granted to all Christians. He talks about God's great mercy towards us, that, that we have this new birth in him, um, that we have this living hope because of his resurrection, and we have this inheritance, this eternity that's been given to us and secured for us. 
And Peter looks at this unbelievable benefits package. And he just says, oh my gosh, like this is unbelievable. I can't believe I get to tell you about this. And he says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I am overwhelmed by the implications of what I'm sharing with you. Do you ever get that way? Have you guys been in conversations with people where you are talking with them about God and about what he's done in you and about what he can do in them and you just are just, you can't believe how good the news is. And you're just so filled with excitement and joy that you're sharing this with somebody and what this impact, what impact this might have on their life. John Piper, he put it like this. He said, our goal is to worship God To see God's great reality with our minds, feel God's beauty and wonder with our hearts, and speak and sing God's greatness with our mouths. And right away as I started reading this to prepare for this, and I read verse 3, I knew like, man, I need to up the ante (laughs) to to get up to match Peter's level of enthusiasm here. Like, I gotta find I gotta find it deeper in me because this guy had had done some things and experienced some things in his life that gave him so much joy, and he, he just couldn't control it. So Peter is speaking to this group of believers who are experiencing some intense threats. And the heat's being turned up all around them. I'm imagining some of them are, are getting taken and thrown in jail, maybe killed. And he's reminding them of what is true despite their current circumstances. He says, guys, in his great mercy, he's given us a new birth. You once were orphans, and he's brought you from that state into this state of being a beloved child of God. You once were strangers and enemies of God, and now you are called friends and children. You once were exiled, but now you've been brought into the family of the kingdom of God. All these things have changed because of your relationship with him. He has taken your old sinful flesh and he has cast it into the deep. You're a new creation. And we get to do this amazing do-over as Christians, right? We get this second chance to become this new person. All the old stuff and our old ways and all the old junk is gone. And in Christ we are new and we have this guide, this helper named the Holy Spirit who comes along with us and he's like, I'm going to help turn you into your true self the person that you really are, the person that you want to be more than anything. We, are, we have a living hope. And hope sometimes can be a confusing word because people toss the word around. In a lot of ways, it makes it sound like kind of like I hope so, kind of like wishful thinking, right? Will MU basketball ever be good again? Well, I hope so, right? It's not that kind of hope, okay? This is a hope that you can speak of in full assurance, full confidence. Will KU football ever win another football game? I mean, you know, we got to work both sides of the state line, right? Okay. Actually, I'd say I'd sure hope not, but that's okay. Um, But Peter, guys, is saying, remember, as we think about his backstory, right? He's speaking of these things, and he's saying, guys, this Jesus that I'm telling you about, he is for real. You can count on him. I walked with him for three years. I saw with my own eyes the the people, the miraculous things that he healed, the way that he touched folks. 
I saw the way that he loved and forgave and, and accepted the marginalized, the people that were on the fringes that nobody loved and they cast aside. I walked on water with this guy. I watched him die because of his love for you and I. I saw the empty tomb. I touched his resurrected body and, and conversated with that person. I watched him forgive and restore me. And then, guys, listen, it gets better. I watched him use me, this broken, messed up guy who, who so many times blew it. I watched him use me to speak the gospel to thousands of people, and thousands of people came to know the Lord. I watched him use me heal people who were, were sick and lame, and, and I got to speak the words, and they stood up and walked. I've been imprisoned for preaching the gospel. And one time I was sitting there and this angel came in and loosed the chains and got me up and we walked past all the Roman guards like they were just standing there asleep and we just walked out into the streets of Rome. This is the God I'm talking about. (laughs) You can trust this Jesus. You can fully hope in him. In the midst of of guys, these, these Christians that are in and around Rome, in this very trying time, you need to know that he is completely committed to you that he is faithful, that he will not disappoint you or let you down. You are a treasure to him, as we've talked about in recent weeks. And he says he's given you all of these things, and your response, our response, ought to be praise. It ought to be. In the Old Testament, you can see just verses after verse of praise. I just picked a few. (laughs) Delight yourself in the Lord. Serve him with gladness. Rejoice before the Lord your God in everything you put your hand to. And this is all before Jesus even came, right? How much more should we have to praise God for after Christ? So the New Testament writers kind of join in the chorus. Philippians, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. In 2 Corinthians, he writes, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. And then in the book of Revelation where John gets this this picture of the future and these angels that are surrounding the throne of Christ, it says in a loud voice those angels sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Peter lays out these amazing truths and promises and then he says this, look at verse 6, just the first part, it says, In all this, you greatly rejoice. Do we? If people walked off the street this morning through the wellspring doors just a few minutes ago when we were worshiping and they looked around at this crowd and they saw uh, the, the... you know, the characteristics of your, your body during worship, the facial expressions, the things you were doing, would they say, man, those people are greatly rejoicing. I want what they have. I hope so. I heard y'all, some of y'all singing pretty loudly this morning, right? But man, under, under a little uh, close eye of inspection on just you, what would they say? He says, you ought to greatly rejoice. So why don't we sometimes greatly rejoice? True confession time. What do you guys think? I'm asking you a question. 
Why don't you greatly rejoice sometimes, even though you know the promises, you've heard the promises, you've heard the truths about who God is and what he's done for you, why don't we greatly rejoice? Yeah. I'll have to um, say uh, material things. Okay. We're distracted by the things of this world, material things. Yeah. What else? Yeah, Steve. okay yeah steve said they played tambourines where he grew up and he's not sure how that'd be received here but hey i say bring your tambourine brother ready we're ready for it what else what do you think what keeps us from greatly rejoicing yeah Uh, it seems like the problems overweigh the promises sometimes the problems over outweigh the promises okay yeah with human eyes sometimes it, it feels like the problems outweigh the promises that's good. What else? Just speak for yourself. Yeah. We take it for granted. Okay. We take it for granted. Good. Zach? Mm. Worry about what other people might think? Sure. Anything else? Those are good answers. What's that? Okay. Sure. Okay. If you don't want, yeah, you're concerned about what other people think or what they might think. Absolutely. I think, and this was mentioned by some of you guys, <clears throat> the main reason that we don't greatly rejoice is primarily because we put our hope in so many other things. We put our hope in our spouse our careers, our family, our kids, our relationships, our material things. It's what we call around here the Jesus and syndrome, right? I want Jesus, but I also want his amazing blessings aren't blessings aren't enough. We want those and our life to work out right, our relationships to go well, our career to steadily advance and have the the house and the car and the vacation and all those other things. We don't greatly rejoice because when life stops going our way, we start looking for other answers besides Jesus to satisfy us. And it's different for everybody. It might be you turn to a friend. It might be you turn to shopping. (laughs) It might be you turn to hobbies or distractions or escape or whatever it might be for you. At least that's, that's what I do. <laughs> that's why I don't rejoice. Let's look at verse 6. <clears throat> it says this, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuous, genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes, perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. He says, you rejoice despite your present difficult circumstances. And he says, in fact, these trials have come that it might test your faith to to see if it will be proven genuine. And if you look at it closely, it sounds like Peter is saying that God is actually orchestrating these trials. 
What's that say again? It said, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Man, that doesn't sound like fun, does it? Because we live in a culture that tries to escape suffering or trials of any kind most of the time. To prove your faith to be genuine, he says. So he gives us these trials, and we have to ask, why did the trials come? The scripture says that to prove your faith to be genuine, when we make other things besides Jesus our idols, when we put our hope in things of this world, I can promise you, he will bring trials. He will bring distress. Because he is a jealous father. And God wants all of your heart and all of your affections. And so when he sees something else in your life that you're making an idol more than him, he'll insert himself and he'll turn up the heat in your life. And it'll bring those impurities in our hearts to the surface. And then he stands there and hopes, like a gentleman, that will allow him to wipe the impurities away so that our faith will be made pure. And I've seen God do that in my life. And I've told this story to some of you before, but um, I moved to St. Joe in 2001 to do Young Life, to take over as area director here. And uh, I followed up Dave Hind, who had been here for quite a while and was doing a great job. And, but I kind of came in with this kind of hot shot mentality that I was going to whip this place into shape. And uh, I had had a couple of pretty good years of doing Young Life in Kansas City, and so I was really kind of just full of myself, honestly. And so I came in, and instead of just being patient and learning to love people and just develop some relationships, I was like, oh, man, we need to do this and change that and start doing this. And... And it did not go well. And, um, you know, people started to confront me about, about your pride and your arrogance. And I did not like hearing that at all. <laughs> and I was really angry. And I was trying to justify myself and, and talk about, you know, why this wasn't my issue. It was their issue and blah, blah, blah. But over time, as I kind of came to God, as I would encourage you to do when you hear things about yourself that you don't like, is I always encourage people and say, you know what, if people are saying something about you, you need to ask the Lord, is even like 5% of what they're saying true? And you need to deal with that and not just discount the whole thing because you don't like it or you don't like who it came from. Because God a lot of times chooses to use people that we don't want to hear it from. And so luckily, I had some people around me that were wise enough to tell me to kind of dig into it a little bit. And what I found over time was that it was true. God showed me the depth of kind of the pride rooted in me. And I was making my success as a leader my idol. God loved me too much to let that happen. (laughs) So he turned up the heat because he was preparing me Um, to be a better leader in a lot of different places, whether it ended up being in my family, as a father, as a spouse. He knew that this church was going to exist one day. Didn't want you guys to have to put up with my arrogant, prideful spirit, right? It happened to Paul as well. I want to show just a, a passage that he wrote in Corinthians. 
Paul said this, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experience in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Guys, these trials didn't come because God didn't love Paul. They came because he, he did love him. He loved him so much that he didn't want Paul's faith, he, he wanted Paul's faith to be refined and made pure. And so I want to ask all of us here this morning, if you haven't been paying attention, if you've drifted in the past few minutes, I want you to come back here, and I want to ask you this question. Is there something going on in your life right now, maybe an area that you've made an idol in your heart, where God may be turning up the heat, bringing up some trials, some discomfort, trying to get some of the impurities buried deep in you to come up to the surface so you can deal with those. And if he is, how are you cooperating with that? When you've seen some ugly sides of yourself, have you been willing to trust God and to say, hey, okay, come, I'd really like you to kind of sweep those away. I'd like you to take the the impure parts of my heart and take them away so what's left is a more pure faith in me. Because if we cooperate with our Heavenly Father in those moments, the end result is this. Peter said in verse 7 that it will result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ is revealed. It'll be one of those moments where Jesus looks back on your life and says, remember that time? Well done, good and faithful servant." I know that wasn't easy for you to see. I know you didn't want to see that about yourself and come to terms with kind of the depth of, of your sinful spirit there. But I'm really proud that you did and you trusted me. You were better for it. Let's close with verses 8 and 9 this morning. <clears throat> it says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And this is really kind of a curious passage. Why is Peter telling us what we're supposed to be feeling? Why is Peter telling us what we're supposed to be feeling? What do you think? That's possible. Yeah. She said maybe he's just telling us it's okay to, to feel this way. Yeah. Okay. What do you mean? Yeah, yeah. She's saying that he's just rationally kind of playing this out, right? If you're experiencing these things um, from God, then there's really no other response that you can have, right? 
He's stating these things as fact. He's saying, you love him, you believe in him, you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. <laughs> oh, am I? And, and, and I kind of arrived at the same conclusion that Karen did. I think he's saying that if you've truly experienced God, if you've truly experienced his mercy, the, the joy of that new birth, that second chance you get at life, that living hope that you have in not only um, the abundant life that he has for you now, but eternal life with him forever, if you've experienced those things, you can't help but act any other way. It, it doesn't make any sense to act differently. Your heart would be so full that praise and joy is the only reasonable response. And he knows that, that these things will ring true for any authentic believer. They'll be like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I do love him. I do believe in him. I am filled with these things. You know, on my best days, <clears throat> when I have my eyes on God instead of my circumstances and whatever trials might be going on, I can be really overcome with emotion. And it does it, it triggers itself in different ways with you guys. For me, a lot of times it's worship. And on Sunday mornings, sometimes when I'm standing here um, and I'm able to kind of block out everything, blocking out the haters, right? And I can just focus on the goodness of God and who he is and what he's done in my life, kind of like Peter, like recounting all the things, all the things that I've seen God do, not only in me, but in everybody else. And sometimes I can stop and I can listen and I can hear you guys sing too. And I'm like, man, we're all doing this together. Um, I mean, the tears will just come some days. I mean, and I just can't control it. And I don't even know where they're coming from. And I just start weeping. And it could be different for you. It might be when you're reading the Bible. It might be when you're out in nature and you just see something just so beautiful and amazing. Or it might be in those tender moments with your child when you're holding them or rocking them to sleep at night. And you're just so grateful for what you get to experience as a parent. And it just overwhelms you, his goodness towards us. Guys, Peter had seen and tasted that the Lord is good. And he had seen the Lord's faithfulness time and time and time again. And he couldn't comprehend how someone who followed that same God that he did, that loved that same Jesus that had loved him, how they wouldn't have the same response, inexpressible and glorious joy. That's it. He's like, that's, that's got to be your response. And this morning as we come to the communion table, I want you to spend some time as we have some silence reminding yourself once again about what participating in this ceremony means for your life. What does it mean that God became flesh and came to this earth? What does it mean that he allowed his body to be broken, his blood to be poured out so that you and I could be forgiven now and experience eternal life with him forever, that we can be redeemed, given a new birth, shown mercy, a living hope, all these things Guys, the implications of what we're about to participate in as a reminder are staggering if we'll take the time to, to meditate on it and allow it to soak into us. It should bring about incredible joy in our hearts. And if it doesn't, let me remind you what we just studied. The enemy has come to steal and kill and destroy. 
and he wants to rob your joy. That's his goal. And we can either let him or we can say, nah. And sometimes we're not strong enough and our friends around us need to say, nah, for you, right? So be reminded of that. If you're not experiencing joy, if you're taking these things for granted, then you need to say, Satan, get behind me. I should be joyful about these things, and I want to have that joy in my life. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you.